0: Just once more in the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah as we read a short section at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 8, verse 19, to chapter 9, verse 7, where we read these words. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living, to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and, looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Again, thanks be to God for his own inspired and inerrant word. Now, kept in a special treasury in the Tower of London in England, my own home and native country, are what has become known throughout the world as the crown jewels. And among these priceless symbols of monarchy, there in the specially guarded cabinet within the Tower of London, are the crowns of England. Among them, for instance, St. Edward's crown, made for Charles the Second's congregation, uh, or coronation, I should say, of all gold and studded with many precious and beautiful stones. And there in that collection is another famous crown, the imperial state crown that was made in the 19th century for Queen Victoria, who reigned over an empire upon which it was boasted, The sun never set a crown with some 3,000 gems contained in it, including the famous black ruby that was once given to the black prince in 1367, and a sapphire from the coronation ring of Edward the Confessor, and a large Stuart's sapphire, one of the largest in the world from the exiled House of Stuart that was then restored to its rightful place when successors gained the ascendancy to the throne. And the enormous and famous diamond in that crown, one of the four stars of Africa, one of the four largest diamonds in the whole world, form part of the imperial state crown. And to view that cabinet and to see these rich gems and insignia of the monarchy of England is an unforgettable experience. But what I have to bring to you this morning is something else from another treasury, the treasury of God's own word, where we have in that treasury the glorious prophecies of Christ surrounding his head like a gem-studded crown. And these prophecies and these promises are so much richer than any merely earthly gems and insignia of monarchy. In our passage in the book of Isaiah this morning, we read of some of those rich gems that rest upon our Savior's crown and sparkle there and set him apart as a prince among men and an altogether glorious one. And I want you with me this morning to look at three of those gems, as it were, as we examine a familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 9 that will yield to us both a rich and a fruitful meditation upon the glory of Christ, of blessed memory. And you will notice with me that in that passage there are really three things upon which our attention should be taken this morning. There is in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 9 what I have termed a penetrating light. And in verses 3 through 5 there is the description of Christ as a powerful leader. And in verses 6 and 7 finally the description that surpasses all the other ones in a sense of him as a peaceful lord or prince. And so we see these gem-studded crowns sparkle upon the head of Christ and rejoice as the prophet did long centuries ago. First of all, as you look with me at this passage, I suggest to you then that there is what we might term a penetrating light. Read those two verses with me at the beginning of this ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah the prophet. Nevertheless, he says, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. For the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now do you see in this passage But the prophet is predicting a day of gloom and thick darkness and great anguish for God's people. And then suddenly, out of these threatenings, bursts forth a vision sudden as the sunrise. And as the consequences, he says, of Messiah's rule, there bursts forth a glorious light that appears before his presence is then seen behind it and around it. Now as you look at these two verses, we must set them in context together. And the context, you see, is that there is a gloom abroad before there is a glory unveiled we see a nation groping in darkness, a darkness that might be felt suddenly summoned out into the light, into the brightness of a dawn whose light is amazing. And to see what has happened, we need to turn back to the end of that previous chapter of the book of Isaiah, whose verses I read to you in verses 19 through 22. See what has happened to the nation and the people of Judah in the 8th century before Christ, in the period when Isaiah the prophet prophesied and conducted his remarkable ministry. It's a time of turmoil, as you read in chapter 8, a time of political unrest in the nation, when Ahaz, that weak and wicked king of Judah, is upon the throne and has refused the counsel of the prophet Isaiah that he has been given in verse 13 of chapter 8 to put his trust in the Lord and rely upon him that he might in turn become a sanctuary to God's people. But this weak and wicked ruler, seeing the forces gathering around the borders of his kingdom to the north, Pekah, king of Israel, pressing in upon him, still further to the northwest, Rezin, king of Syria, in league with Pekah to invade the land of Judah. This weak and wicked ruler appeals not to the Lord, but to the great king of Assyria to come into alliance with him and to defend him from these other two invading kings and their armies. And you can picture the scene as the whole nation is jittery as the king himself is upon his throne. And the situation could scarcely be worse. It is a time, says Isaiah, at the end of chapter 8, when only distress and darkness and fearful gloom abound in the nation. And into that situation, you see, there comes this glorious and blessed light that the prophet speaks of. In the midst of this terrible darkness and distress that comes when God hides his face from a disobedient and rebellious people, from an apostate nation, into this background of gloom, says Isaiah, the light of God so suddenly shines. And this is the second thing that he brings to us. Not only the gloom around, but the glory unveiled. You see it there in verse 2 of chapter 9. To this people, says Isaiah, in the midst of a darkness that could be felt, against this dark background, the prophet-artist, splashes a brilliant picture of the coming of the Lord of Light. There will be no more gloom, he says, for those in distress, for the people walking in darkness will see a great light. As sudden as sunrise bursts this glorious vision upon the prophetic eyes. Now what then does it mean Well, whatever it may have meant in the time of Isaiah the prophet and whatever the immediacy of the prophet's prophecy may have meant, we know that there are implications far and away beyond those days. It is a vision of things yet to be. It is a vision of glory, of the gospel of Christ, of the coming of Emmanuel, of the one who is the answer to all the nation's deepest needs. God will in mercy act, says Isaiah the prophet. Have they rejected him? Have they despised him? Have they set him at naught? Have they said we will not have him as our sanctuary, but will appeal instead to means visible and tangible, even the great king of Assyria himself? Well, God will give them, says Isaiah, one final token of his love and mercy to his covenant people, one final sign. And on that dismal gloom and terrible darkness shines all at once a great and amazing light. Now, beloved, what is that light if it is not Jesus Who is the light not only of that nation, but now of all the world. You see, what we are to understand is this. But in answer to the nation's great needs, upon the prophet's eyes of vision, there burst this revelation of one who would come. The very contrast to darkness, the symbol of sin and need and man's failure and defeat, One whose very coming is like the dawn arising so that the people who lived in darkness are no longer in that darkness that could be felt. It is Jesus, the light. It is the figure of salvation and the blessings that he brings when he comes to people clothed with his gospel and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not any more walk in darkness. And as we look at him who is the penetrating light, we are bound to ask the question today, why are men still so blind? Like the weak and wicked Ahaz and his nation that were so disobedient to the Lord in their day, who made the realities what can be seen and felt and touched and experienced of the material things of this world, and who were mentally and morally and spiritually deceived in their disobedience, while the only enduring things, the prophet says to us in these verses, are the God-given things the things visible to the eye of faith, the great gift that God will give to a people in direst distress, a people in darkness, upon whom he will make the light suddenly to shine. Do you, as you have come here this morning, realize that the Son of God was given as the light of life? Have you in repentance and faith perceived the glorious rays of him who rises upon the benighted soul and gives to them eternal life? So that you now live not as those in darkness but as those upon whom the true light has now shined, a penetrating light But there is, you see, secondly, a powerful leader who is set forth in these passages in verses 3 through 5. And this is the second picture that Isaiah gives to us of the coming of Christ in this great passage. You have enlarged the nation, the prophet says, and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as men rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. And he goes on to speak of the day of Midian and the day of battle and how he who is being sent as the powerful leader will destroy all the military power of the enemy of God's people. Now what is he really saying to us in these remarkable verses? Well, he's bringing, you see, another gem-encrusted crown from the treasury of the prophecies of God's word and making it rest upon the head of King Jesus Emmanuel, our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as he was described before as the penetrating light, now he is described as the powerful and victorious leader. Now what is there in these verses for the church today? What does it teach us of our glorious Emmanuel? Well, it teaches us, you see, three things in these verses 3 through 5. And the first of them is in verse 3, that there is enlargement for God's people when the powerful leader comes amongst them. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy, says the prophet. They rejoice before you as people at harvest time, as men rejoice, Dividing the plunder. Now what he is saying to us, you see, is a spiritual truth clothed in these Old Testament terms. And the truth is that wherever the illuminating gospel of Christ comes, there is what? Enlargement. It is true, wherever the Lord Jesus exercises his ministry as the light of life. Men and women and boys and girls are brought in to the kingdom of God. They are set free from the powers of evil. They are rescued from the dominion of sin. And the kingdom of God is enlarged through his church. And you see how the prophet puts it in this Old Testament language. He envisages Israel as being decreased by war or depopulation, especially in those northern regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, the northernmost tribes, the first to feel the impact of the invading forces that came into the land. And they have dwindled down in number and become depopulated. And then he looks again and he sees that this powerful leader who will come abroad is reversing this process. And you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy, says the prophet, as he sees in vision the expansiveness of the gospel of Christ. My dear friend, this morning, are you rejoicing on this Sunday, on this Lord's Day, in that joy that we should experience when sinners are brought into the kingdom of God? In verse 3, the joy is mentioned. At the end of verse 3, we're commanded to rejoice. And in the middle of verse 3, we're told again that we should rejoice when sinners are gathered in to the growing kingdom of God and such jubilation is the gift of God himself. But do you notice that the second fruit this great leader brings is deliverance in verse 4? For as in the days of Midian's defeat, he says, you have shattered the yoke and the bar and the rot of the oppressor. And this verse gives us the reason for the enlargement. That there has been deliverance under the ministry of this God-appointed leader of his choice. And he's contrasting the fact that through so much of Israel's long history, the very opposite of enlargement and deliverance happened. They were so often oppressed by their enemies and worn down by the heel of the adversary and their land overrun, and their people depopulated, as we have seen. But now, says the prophet, as in Midian's day, that day of Gideon's victory, not by military might and power, you remember, but by means far other than that, the Lord of hosts bringing deliverance from a handful of soldiers but defeated a multitude of enemies. Supernatural deliverance. In that same way, he says, deliverance will come to the people of God again who have been held in bondage. So there is enlargement. There is deliverance. But in verse 5, you notice, there is victory. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood, he says. And all the impedimentia of war will be burned in the all-consuming fire. So thirdly, there is victory. It gives the reason for the enlargement and for the deliverance. But this powerful deliverer who will come will roll all the impedimentia of war together and set it ablaze in an all-consuming fire so that even the memories of war that these artifacts would bring back to us is destroyed and gone forever. And you see, it's a symbol of his ability to annihilate totally the powers that have held his people in bondage and in distress It's a figure that says to her, says to us that his victory does not come to us by halves. Enlargement, deliverance, victory. Think of it. The crown he wears, the glorious gem-encrusted insignia that rests upon our Savior's brow are these. And not, beloved, in a so-called millennium that some Christians believe we still await. But now the church experiences these things. Now the individual who receives the Lord Jesus as the penetrating light and the powerful leader knows enlargement, knows deliverance, knows victory as the consequences of receiving the Christ who breaks into the battleground of our lives and our homes and our world and delivers us into his own fulsome and lasting peace. And I must ask you this morning, do you know the abounding joy of this great leader? as you see that increase and enlargement of his reign coming into your life, the joy of those, says the prophet, who rejoice at harvest time, the joy of those who divide the spoil after a victorious campaign, as we look to that gem-encrusted crown of Christ a powerful leader. Now thirdly, as I draw to a close, we have a picture in verses 6 and 7 of the Lord Jesus who is brought to us as the peaceful Lord or the peaceful Prince in those very familiar words to us, made reminiscent in the music of George Friedrich Handel for unto us, A son is born, unto us a child is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. A passage, beloved, that takes us into the presence of mystery and majesty and mercy. And on these three notes, I want to finish this morning hour. In verses 6 and 7, you see, there is, I think, first of all, a mystery here. Who is this Jesus, this Emmanuel, this God with us, who is the penetrating light and the powerful leader and now the peaceful prince? Who is he? And the answer is, he comes to us with no ordinary attributes. Look at verse uh, 6 there. He is a son who has been born. He is a child who has been given to us. So he is a human being. He is fully human. And we read that the government will be upon his shoulder. And in verse 7, that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign upon the throne of his father David forever. But he is a child. He is a child who is before us. He is a son who has been given to us, yet he is possessed of a dynasty that shall never see an end. A human being, truly man, yet of such a genre that men have never before beheld. And you see that we are in the midst of mystery. We are facing irreconcilable components. Let me put it to you this way. As you turn to the New Testament Scriptures... And as you read in the nativity Counts the accounts of his birth, you find the mention of three kings gathered together in the great day of the Roman Empire. Augustus sitting on his throne in Rome in the golden age of that empire sending out a decree that all the world should be taxed, that there should be a census. And there you see the governor of the east sending out that decree as Caesar's underling. And in the little kingdom of Palestine, so distant from Rome, the third king or kinglet, Herod, jumps to attention. And three kings in descending order of greatness order the taxation. But only one king has outlasted them all. And only one king today really matters, the helpless child of Bethlehem, upon whose shoulder Isaiah says, the government rests, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You see, in human terms, what mystery! is here. This mystery that undergirds still his relationship with his covenant people. But look also, there is majesty in this passage, isn't there? This one who is a child and a son who is given to us is called in verse 7 or verse 6 the mighty God, the everlasting Father. You see, he who is truly man is also truly God and the depth of this prophecy needs the history of the incarnation for its full disclosure the everlasting father in other words his life did not begin in the virgin's womb the mighty God the hero God the victor Victorious God, as the Hebrew has it. The one who in that great battle against Satan and sin and all the wreck that it has wrought in the universe goes down victorious into death and vanquishes Satan on our behalf and rises again. The mighty God bearing salvation in his hands for his covenant people. This is the powerful Lord of peace that Isaiah brings to our attention here. And finally, there is mercy in this passage, isn't there? Not only is there mystery and majesty, but mercy here as well. Because, my dear friends, we are now at the vantage point of the New Testament with the undergirding of God's completed revelation. And we look at these mysterious things that Isaiah himself must have studied and re and wondered at and contemplated over and gone back and studied again and said, how can these things be? A child, a son, who is the everlasting Father and is the mighty God. And under the vantage point of that fuller revelation, these so mysterious things are beautifully seen to fit together. But he is truly human. But he is truly God. But he has come into this world to dispel the thick darkness in which his people dwell to completely subdue and annihilate the opposing enemy and the adversary, to banish every disturbing element from his universe and bring peace to his people, his church. And I finish on this note, that you notice this prophecy, according to Isaiah, is unto us, unto us, This child is born. Unto us, this son is given. It is a present tense. It is as real to us as it was to Isaiah and to Ahaz, to whom this prophecy was given, and as real to all the people of God who have lived between them and us now, because there is no past tense for the promises of God. My friends, these are present realities given to us to live in them, to enjoy them, to rejoice in them. As the prophet has said, are you living in his holy light this morning? Do you know him as that penetrating light that dispels the darkness of your night of sin? Are you under his rule as the powerful leader? Are you enjoying the blessed gift of his peace as the peaceful Lord? Because unto us this child is given upon whose shoulder the government rests and of whose kingdom there shall be no end. May God bless these thoughts and this meditation to us all. Let us pray. Our Father, we're very thankful this morning for this passage as it speaks of the richness of Christ and brings those gem-encrusted crowns to rest upon his royal brow. May we affirm them in their place. May we rejoice in these words of the ancient prophecy of Isaiah and above all may we live in the present realities of those promises realized in the gospel of salvation in Christ for his name's sake Amen